Our words from the scripture this morning is from Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it reads, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire with inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you who has believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, church. Thank you, Mike. Let's take a seat together if we could, and also take our Bibles and turn to the passage that Mike just read. It's good to see all of you this morning. We are continuing our series through Second Thessalonians. I want to take a moment before we get into our passage today to explain why I'm calling this series Kingdom Come. You might have wondered about that last week. We introduced this series and we looked at the first few verses in 2 Thessalonians, but I didn't really explain the title Kingdom Come. If you remember from 1 Thessalonians, I entitled that series Kingdom Called, and that was based on that key verse in 1 Thessalonians 2. We exhorted each one of you encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So that was the theme, that was the idea, idea behind 1 Thessalonians. And this, this kingdom language, this kingdom idea is very important to Paul, especially in these letters to the Thessalonians. And it makes sense because the Thessalonians were suffering, they were struggling, they were being persecuted. And Paul's like, keep your eyes on the kingdom. Keep your eyes on the future. Remember that there's an eternity that's awaiting for you that was meant to encourage them during their time of suffering, during their times of persecution. And Paul wanted the Thessalonians in the midst of that suffering to walk in a manner worthy of King Jesus. And the Holy Spirit wants us, is speaking to us too, from the books of First and Second Thessalonians so that we too here in Decatur would walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom. Well, Paul's message in 2 Thessalonians is very similar to 1 Thessalonians. 
except that Paul talks more explicitly about what the coming of Christ's kingdom and his coming and with vengeance, you might have had a sense of that as Mike was reading, what, that, what that's going to look like and how that's all going to come about and how King Jesus is going to reward those who believe in him, reward those who are faithful to him and punish those who reject him. So I've called this series Kingdom Come because that's what we anticipate as followers of Jesus, the coming of Christ. That's what we anticipate. That's what we long for. That's what we prepare for. Christ's return, Christ's coming. Jesus, if you remember, told us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So, so that's what 2 Thessalonians is all about as a book. That's the theme of this book. What, what is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12, our passage for today? What is, what is that passage about? What's Paul trying to communicate to us in these few verses? We looked at verses 1 through 4 last week. That's all about Paul complimenting the Thessalonians for their faith, for their love for one another, for their endurance, even through suffering. Well, what's the backside of chapter 1 about, verses 5 through 12? Well, it's all about what happens to those who believe and those who don't believe Christ at his coming. And Paul makes a sharp distinction between those who believe and those who don't believe, those who embrace Christ and those who reject him. And by the way, throughout the scriptures, there are only two categories, believers in Christ and unbelievers. There is wheat and there is chaff. There is sheep and there is goat. And there's no third category. There's no third option. You are either part of Christ's kingdom or you are an enemy of Christ the king. Those are the options. And one of the things that Paul says in this passage is that God is making those who are part of his kingdom worthy of his kingdom. So you're, you're part of Christ's kingdom. I, I belong to Christ. I belong to King Jesus. Well, there's, there's something that God is doing in your life right now to make you worthy of that calling. He's preparing you. He's refining you. He's purifying you. Paul says in verse five, you can read this in your Bibles. He says this, that is the suffering of the Christians from verse four. This suffering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So here's my question for you, Harvest Decaters. We get started this morning. Are you considered worthy of the kingdom of God? Are you kingdom worthy? Are you being made kingdom ready right now in your life? Let's talk about this this morning. Go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. Paul says in verse five that those who are kingdom worthy endure judgment now through suffering. That those who belong to Christ Jesus will suffer like King Jesus suffered so that we can experience the glory that King Jesus has now. Before we look more closely at verse five, let me just address an objection that some of you might have. This is an instinct that you should have, even as I read that. Those who are kingdom worthy endure judgment now through suffering. You might say to me in response, Pastor Tony, come on. None of us are worthy of Christ's kingdom. 
Don't you know that? I mean, you're like the pastor here. You should know that. None of us deserve the free gift of salvation. We deserve death. We deserve hell. It's only by God's grace that we are allowed to enter into his kingdom. And if you're thinking that right now, let me just say, let me affirm that. You are 100% correct. That is totally true. Paul says in Ephesians, you can read this on the screen, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. That's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. I heard Alistair this last week recite this as part of his school, and I was like, wow, that ties in really nicely to what I'm preaching on Sunday. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. You didn't work in order to be saved. You didn't do anything to merit salvation, but because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. That's, so yeah, we are saved by grace. But here's what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians. And he says this elsewhere too, by the way. He says that as part of God's grace in our lives, he is making us kingdom worthy. So he saves us by grace, but he's, he's sanctifying us. He's preparing us. He's purifying us. He's allowing us to suffer and endure hardship in order that we can be ready, kingdom worthy, kingdom ready. He's calling us to holiness and sanctification. Look at 2 Timothy 1 again. God saved us and called us to a holy calling. That's part of our salvation. He's he's calling us to holiness, to sanctification. He's calling us, here's a great word, to Christ-likeness to share in his suffering so that we might also share in his glory. That's part of the process of the Christian life. And so Paul says in verse five, we have to endure suffering. Paul says this, this suffering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. I know there's a lot in there and you're thinking, what what does he mean by that? Let's just take this apart a little bit more. How is suffering evidence of God's righteous judgment? How is the suffering in the Christian life, the hardships that we go through, how is that evidence of God's righteous judgment? How is the suffering of the Christian in Thessalonica? Remember, the Thessalonians are, man, they're being persecuted. They're going through all kinds of hardship. Paul, when he came to town, he got run out of town, scared to death, you know, threatened within an inch of his life. After he leaves, the persecution continues. In Thessalonica, people are suffering, maybe even being executed for their faith in Christ. How is that evidence of God's righteous judgment? Well, those who follow Christ will suffer, like Christ suffered. That's clear from the lips of Jesus himself. He said, we will be opposed like he was opposed. We will be opposed by Satan. We will be opposed by the powers that be in this world. We will suffer the same kinds of things that other people suffer because we share in human sinfulness. We are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, so we will get cancer and die. We will get heart disease and die. Women will experience pain through childbirth. Men will work by the sweat of their brow. We all experience the curse and the judgment because we are part of humanity. Here's the key, though. I mean, even unbelievers partake in that, just like believers, that kind of suffering. Our suffering as believers will come to an end at some point. And we will enter into the presence of the Lord and it'll end. 
Whereas unbelievers, and this is totally clear from this text, the suffering will never end for them. It will continue on forever and ever in eternity. So yes, you know, Jesus suffered greatly, but then he was raised from the dead and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. We will suffer in this life and struggle and die, most of us, painful deaths. But then we will be, we will be in glory forever. Here's why this is practical. You might say, okay, this, this is heavy, Pastor Tony. What, how does this practically impact my life? Some of you might say, you know, why, why do Christians get cancer? Why do Christians get persecuted in places like China? Why are Christians in our day, even in our country, labeled bigots or closed-minded or homophobic? Why doesn't Christ just save us from that? Why doesn't he bring, you know, this is maybe a question you've asked from time to time. Why doesn't God just bring an asteroid from the sky and pulverize anybody who would insult a Christian? Why doesn't he defend us in that way? Y'all ever ask that question? Or is it just me, you know? Bring an asteroid, Lord. Why doesn't he do that? Well, because Christ suffered persecution and affliction in this world, and he wants us to do that too. This is part of making us kingdom ready, part of what, what's making us kingdom worthy. We suffer with Christ in order that we might be glorified in Christ. And by the way, you know, I was talking to my brother-in-law about this in Croatia. We had some really deep discussions about this and, you know, whether life is just cause and effect. You do something bad and so you suffer for it. Or, or is there more going on? And, you know, th yeah, there is cause and effect a lot of times in our world. You know, if you... Even as a Christian, do something stupid, you know, get drunk and drive and then some horrific thing happens to you or to somebody. I mean, that's on you. You are suffering because of something you did, something stupid. But not everything in this world can be put in those tight little cause and effect categories. Sometimes injustice happens. Sometimes, you know, bad things happen to good people. Sometimes children suffer and die. And this is all part of the fall. This is all part of our broken world. You know, cancer is a result of the fall. And ALS is a result of the fall. And all, you know, Alzheimer's is a result of the fall. All of these things we've brought upon ourselves because of sin. And so we will suffer and struggle and maybe even die a, a horrific death. As Jesus died a horrific death. But then we will be raised from the dead. And we will live for eternity with the Lord. Let me ask it this way. Would you rather suffer now in this life or suffer for eternity apart from Christ? Which way would you rather have it? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says this light momentary affliction. All this suffering that we go, just light momentary affliction. Just a drop in the bucket of eternity is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Everybody with me this morning? I know this is heavy material. Some of you might be thinking, Pastor Tony, it's the dead of winter. Couldn't you have preached a cheerier sermon? 
This is important stuff. And I want you to have a sense for why bad things happen in this world, why Christians suffer, why there is even judgment poured out on believers in preparation for eternity. So, and I wouldn't be a faithful preacher of God's word if I hid these things from you. I mean, this is as clear as day in the scriptures. So go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Here's, here's some good news, okay? So yes, those who are kingdom worthy are going to endure judgment now through suffering. We're gonna suffer. We're gonna go through some hardships. But here's the good news. They, those who are kingdom worthy, you belong to Jesus Christ, they escape judgment at Christ's second coming. Look, I'll be straight with you. I don't want to suffer affliction. I, I don't want to fight off Satan's attack in my life. I'm tired of fighting Satan. I am. I, I don't want to be unliked in this present. I like to be liked. You know, I don't like being labeled as a Christian or being ostracized in community. I don't, I don't want to die of cancer or Alzheimer's or heart disease. I don't even like aging. I, I'm tired of not being able to do the things that I used to be able to do. And yet, I'd rather deal with that. I'd rather deal with all of those aspects, those difficulties of life, than be on the wrong side of Christ at his second judgment, at his second coming. Paul says this in verse six. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now remember, What's he saying here? The Thessalonians were being persecuted. Maybe they had even asked Paul, you know, why doesn't Jesus defend us? These, these, these people, these other people in Thessalonica, they're persecuting us. They're hurting us. We belong to Jesus. Defend us. Why not? Why doesn't he afflict those who afflict us? Doesn't he love us? And maybe they're even asking, you know, should we defend ourselves? Should we take vengeance, exact vengeance on our enemies? Similarly, we might say in our own day, you know, why doesn't God just take out Satan right now? Why doesn't he just take him out? What are we waiting for? Why does he let him do what he's doing? Why doesn't God just bring an asteroid from the sky and wipe out Kim Jong-un or Muslim extremists in our world who are causing all kinds of problems for Christians? Why doesn't he shut down Planned Parenthood clinics? Where is God? Isn't he just? Why doesn't he do it now? What Paul is saying here in verse six, soon enough, Christ will do that. And it's part of his mercy that he lingers and waits so that others may come into his kingdom. Soon enough, Christ will do just that. He will repay those who afflicted and persecuted Christians. And verse seven says this, God will grant relief to those, to you, Thessalonians who are afflicted as well as to us. You know, Paul, he's, you know, put up with your afflictions, put up with your persecutions. Paul's saying that, but it's not like Paul's saying that in theory. Did Paul suffer? Yeah, he's speaking from experience. God will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. We've been afflicted too, Paul says. When's this going to happen? When? When, oh Lord? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let me clarify something for you. you know, Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, 
He said that the word vengeance, this word here, we need to be careful to not confuse that word with revenge. God doesn't exact revenge. He, he brings vengeance. The purpose of vengeance is to satisfy God's holy law. The purpose of revenge, you know, that's to pacify a personal grudge. I'm gonna take revenge on somebody. God doesn't hold a grudge against lost sinners. Quite the contrary. He sent his son to die for lost sinners like you and me. He pleads with them to return to him. But if sinners prefer to know not God and obey not the gospel, there is nothing left for God to do but to judge them. So let me just ask you an important question. Everybody listening? I'm not exaggerating. This is the most important question that anybody could ever ask you. Do you know God? Do you know him? Have you obeyed the gospel? And, and when I say, do you know God? You know, Paul says, those who know God. I don't mean like, yeah, I know about God. He's up there somewhere in the sky and he created the world. Do you have a personal relationship with him that has been brought about by the blood of Jesus, reconciled to him because of your faith in Christ? Do you know God? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? Have you now? Some of you might say, what's the gospel? What does obedience to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ look like? Well, it means putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It means believing in his death as payment for your sin and believing in his resurrection as giving you victory over death. It means Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus, that the Bible delivers to us. And I know how all this sounds. I, people might say something like this. I, I don't like a God of judgment. I don't like thinking about Jesus as someone who inflicts. I mean, look at this picture of Jesus. Does everybody see that in verses 8 and 9? Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those do not. Who's doing this? This is, you know, Jesus. It's not little baby Jesus in a manger. I say, I like little baby Jesus. And he's so sterile and unintimidating and so cute. And You know, when Jesus comes back, I've mentioned this, Paul mentioned this not that long ago, a couple weeks ago. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming as a baby born in a manger. He's not coming as somebody who's going to die and pay for our sins. That has been done. He's come already in humility. The next time he's coming, he's coming to exact vengeance upon his enemies and to bring to those who belong to him, bring us into our glorified state so that we can experience and enjoy him forever. Yes, Jesus is kind. He's compassionate. He graciously offers us salvation, which we don't deserve. 
But if we don't receive that grace, if we reject him, then we will feel the full weight of his vengeance. And by the way, let me say this too. The only thing more terrifying than a God of judgment is not having a God of judgment. Do y'all know what I mean by that? I, I mean, I know this is unpopular in our day, a God of judgment, but what, what, if, what if there was no one to judge all the actions of this world? What if people got away with their horrific deeds and their horrific actions and nobody was out there to judge them? That's terrifying. Living in a world like that where nothing matters. You can do whatever and there's no God that will ever punish it. That is terrifying. As Tim Keller puts it, if there isn't anybody like Jesus, if there is no judge, then nothing means anything. That's frightening. More frightening than a God of judgment is not having a God of judgment, not having any kind of judgment in this world. Go ahead and write this down as number three in our notes. Those who are kingdom worthy, they escape judgment at Christ's second coming, but they also, they also experience glory at Christ's second coming. Look at verse nine with me. Paul says, they will suffer. That's the they from verse eight. Those who do not know God, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we suffer now. We suffer and experience. That's part of our purification. It's part of even the judgment that God pours out on humanity, on the world. But they will suffer, those who don't believe in Christ, the punishment of eternal destruction. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal. That's not annihilation. There's no, there's no purgatory here. It's not annihilationism. According to the book of Revelation, the lake of fire will be the eternal abode of Satan and his demon horde and all those who reject Jesus as their savior. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Let's talk about hell. You need to know this. C.S. Lewis said once, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded. He says, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. In other words, they have received what they have willingly chosen. They want to be separated from God, and they get that. And to be separated from Jesus is nothing less than eternal torment and misery. I don't like talking about hell. It's not my favorite subject. I'd rather talk about heaven and eternity with Christ. But I hope you realize you can't talk about one without talking about the other. You can't talk about hell without talking about heaven. You can't deal with heaven without understanding the reality of hell. And that's why Paul packages these things together in this chapter. Paul talks about this because he loves people and he wants them to hear the truth. He loves them enough to not withhold these things from them, that hell is a real place and there will be a eternal punishment for those who 
who reject Christ. J.C. Ryle said this once. You can read this on the screen. He said, if I never spoke of hell, I should think that I kept back something that was profitable and should look on myself as an accomplice of the devil. Church father, John Chrysostom, he said this. He called the fear of hell wholesome medicine for us. And he says, if we always think of hell, we should not soon fall into it. The remembrance of it is able to work a great good. For this result, he has put into our souls the terror of it as a wholesome medicine. But do you fear the offensiveness of such words, he asks? Have you then, if you are silent, extinguished hell? Or if you speak of it, have you kindled it? Let it be continually spoken of that you may never fall into it. Let me just share something personal with you. As many of you know, I got saved many years ago at a chapel service in Austin, Texas. And I was a kid who, you know, grew up in a Christian home, but that was the time in my life that God got a hold of me. And and I, I got saved. And, and I'll just tell you a big part of that, a big part of my salvation experience, not the whole part, but a big part of it is a fear of hell. I knew I was a sinner. And my mom and my dad, because they loved me, they told me that hell is a real place that exists. And they didn't want me to go there. And so, you know, I showed up at this chapel service at this Christian school that I went to and the pastor got up and he talked about hell and he talked about heaven. And he talked about the salvation that was made possible by Jesus Christ, his death. And I said, I want that. I want that. I want to live with Jesus forever. I don't want to go to hell. And I want you to know right now from my own testimony, from my own lips, that pastor was right to do that. It was right for him to warn me as a kid. And I wouldn't be doing right by you as your pastor to not warn you. Hell is a real place. Nobody talks about hell more than Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, then you need to realize that there's a real place for eternity that people will go who reject Jesus. And so there I was, age six, seven. And I, I chose heaven. I wanted to live my life forever with the Lord. And I wanted to escape the judgment that I knew was right for those who rejected Jesus. Look, if I was the devil, the first thing that I would do is try to convince everybody in this world that hell doesn't exist. And I'm not even that intelligent, not like he is. If I was the devil, that's what I would do. And it just makes you wonder like, man, the devil's doing a pretty good job of that in our day right now. Convincing people that he doesn't exist. Convincing people that hell doesn't exist. That's not, that's not the eternal destiny of those who reject Christ. And unfortunately, even among professing Christians in our day, I'm afraid he's been able to do that. At least get us to be silent about it. But I want you to know, and I want to, say this morning, not just because we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and I'm trying to expound this text. I mean, that's a big part of it. I feared hell and that in my life became wholesome medicine, as John Chrysostom says. That's part of what brought me to Christ. 
I had a fear of spending my eternity separated from God. But I also had this deep desire to know God and to be reconciled with God and to live with God for eternity. And thankfully, this is an essential part of the gospel too. Because Paul says this, let's look together in your Bibles. Here's the contrast. Verse nine, they, those who reject Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. They will suffer punishment, according to verse nine, those who reject Christ, but we, verse 10, we will experience glory. Christ Jesus will be glorified in his saints. We will, he will be marveled at by all of those who believe in him. By all of those who believe the testimony. Paul says our testimony. The testimony about Jesus. What he's done. His death. His resurrection. Do you believe? Harvest, have you believed the testimony concerning Jesus Christ? Do you believe? If so, you will experience this glory at Christ's coming. He will be glorified. We will all marvel at him when he comes. What's that going to look like, by the way, when he comes? What's that that going to look like? Well, thankfully, the book of Revelation speaks about it. Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and the one who was sitting on it is called Faithful and True, Jesus And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. It doesn't sound like a baby in a manger, does it? His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood by the name. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, I wouldn't take a bullet for this, but I actually think that we'll be part of this army that's coming with him. New resurrection bodies riding on horses behind Christ, behind his angels. Maybe. I can't think of a better vantage point to marvel at Christ than as part of these armies. So that's part of the reason I think that. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the beast antichrist and the Kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on this horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it, the prophet, false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. After that event in revelation 19 is revelation 20 when Christ will set up his millennial kingdom and rule for a thousand years. After that, a new heaven, a new earth will be created. A new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and that's the place where we will worship and serve and live with the Lord forever, Revelation 21 and 22. And all of this awaits those who believe the gospel. All of this awaits those who to use Paul's language in 2 Thessalonians, believe the testimony 
concerning Christ. And to that you might say, okay, Pastor, so that's, that's what awaits us when Christ returns. We have all that to look forward to, and even a new heaven and a new earth. What about now? What do I do in the meantime? What does God want me to do right now as we await his return? Well, here's what Paul prays for in verses 11 and 12. He prays that we will exhibit Christ's grace and Christ's glory in our lives. Those who are kingdom worthy, those who belong to his kingdom, they endure judgment now through suffering. They escape judgment at Christ's second coming. They experience glory at Christ's second coming. And then in the here and now, they exhibit Christ's grace and glory in their lives. Here's how Paul closes this passage. Actually, it's a, it's a prayer, verses 11, verse 11 and 12, but let me start in verse 11. Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. It's that language again. God is making us worthy of his calling. We are kingdom called. We are being made kingdom worthy. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians while they await Christ's return. He prays that God would make them worthy of the calling. He prays that God would make them worthy of his calling. He prays that Jesus may be glorified in their lives. He prays that Jesus will be glorified in their lives. Do you pray like that, Harvest Decatur? May Jesus be glorified in my life. God, help me to be worthy of your calling. Help me to glorify Jesus in my life. Help me to endure suffering. Help me to represent Jesus well. Help me to wait patiently for his return. Y'all pray like that? I don't pray like that enough. That's what Paul's praying for this church. He's praying that they will glorify Jesus with their lives. Now, let me talk just practically for a few minutes about glorifying Christ with our lives, and then we're going to take communion together. So I'm just about done, but I want to give you something practical to walk away with this morning. How do we glorify the name of Jesus in our lives? How do we glorify the name of our Lord Jesus as Paul praise that we would in these verses. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians is that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. How might the name of our Lord Jesus be glorified in us, in you, in you, in you, in you? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we do that in the here and now? How do we glorify him? How might the name of our Lord Jesus be glorified in our lives? I'll give you three things and then we're done. Here's the first thing. I'm not, I'm not gonna be overly complicated with this, okay? So we worship Jesus. We worship him. We sing praises to him like we did already this morning. We adore him. We magnify his name. It's not for nothing that one of our pillars out there, you can go and look at it, is one of our pillars is worship. 
And the people that planted this church 10 years ago, they wanted a church that worshiped Jesus and lifts high the name of Jesus. And so I want the Lord Jesus to be glorified in my life. How do I do that? How do I go about that? Well, praise his name, worship him. Let people know. I, you know, before my affections go to any other thing, any other sports team, any other politician, my affections belong to Jesus Christ. And that, that's a good question that maybe you should ask yourself. Am I more excited about other things than I am about the Lord? Am I more inclined to sing a song about somebody else than I am about Jesus? One of the ways that we glorify Christ is we worship Jesus. Here's a second way. We testify about him. We tell people about how he saved our souls. We don't minimize the reality of hell because that's part of the gospel. That's part of God's grace that Jesus saved us from hell. We don't talk with greater enthusiasm about sports or about the weather or about politics than we do Jesus. Our talk about Jesus should be more passionate should be more engaging. It should be, can I use this word? It should be more scintillating than our talk about any other thing, even our spouse. We testify about Jesus. We let people know, I'm saved by the blood of Jesus and I belong to him. And here's the third way that we glorify Jesus in our lives. We live lives like Jesus. We call this Christ-likeness. We imitate Christ. We Im I know, I know, Christ was sinless. You ain't sinless. I'm not sinless. We'll never be perfectly sinless. But we, we spend our lives struggling to approximate Christ's perfection. And that's a worthwhile pursuit in life. We, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We pursue holiness like a dog does a bone. We chase it and we hold on to it and we fight for it. And we endure suffering with grace and with patience. Knowing that if we share in Christ's suffering, we will also share in his glory. So we're going to take communion, but let me just ask a question before we do that. Is Jesus Christ being glorified right now in your life? I mean, I want you to really search your hearts and consider that. Is he? Would people look at your life, the way you're living it, and say, man, Jesus is, Jesus is made awesome by that person's life, the way he lives his life, the way she lives her life. I know there'll come a day, and this is what this passage is about, when Jesus will come and we'll have these new glorified bodies and we will truly glorify God with our, with Christ with our bodies for eternity. We'll, we'll experience that and we'll exhibit his glory, that, that's coming. I can't wait for that day. But in the here and the now, it, even in the midst of your imperfections and sinfulness, how are you glorifying Christ? How are you representing the king 
Let's just pray towards that end right now, and then we'll take communion together. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for these truths. Lord, thank you for rescuing us from an eternity separated from you. Thank you for rescuing us from hell. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to represent you, to share in your glory. Lord, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians is that that Christ Jesus would be glorified in their lives. And Lord, that's my prayer too for us as a church. That we would worship Jesus, that we would live lives like Jesus, that we would testify about Jesus. that we would glorify him in all of our actions and all of our words and all of our deeds. Help us to do that, Lord, I pray. Lord, we're about to take these elements and remember the sacrifice, the blood that was shed for our sins. Lord, thank you for that sacrifice. Remind us, Lord, of your goodness to us, your love for us. Remind us too, Lord, what it cost you so that we might be saved. Bless this time of remembrance, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.